Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with the co-pilot of the Millennium Falcon, uh, or co-pilot of Mastering Dungeons, maybe both. Teos Avedia. Hey, Teos. Oh, Let's fly a chewy noise, But if I could, I would make a chewy noise right here. Okay. Uh, I had a fantastic... You could put on the coat. I could, yes. I, someday I should. I just, just keep it nearby, but anyway. Um, I had quite the weekend, Sean. Uh, I had not one, but two yeah. uh, significant events. The first significant event was reading this uh, Blade Runner, the role-playing game. That uh, I've, I've been having yeah. a lot of fun reading this. So impressive how Freely is able to put unbelievable money into the layout and art. And I don't know, whatever Swedish grant they use for this, uh, hats off to Sweden because it's just, you know, full of like, you know, just gorgeous. Everything's mm -hmm. gorgeous. Um, but it, it's also a really neat system. And, and so I'm going to have to watch the movies again and I'm going to have to run the starter set adventure because it looks really cool. Um, the other significant thing right. I did was uh, play with chainsaws, like one does, and uh, as one does, maybe I didn't quite calibrate for how much weight was coming off the tree and how the limb would rise compared to the ladder I was on. The good news is I stayed on, but I yeah. did, yeah, get a little something, Ooh. a little little the equivalent of That's carpet burn, one. but uh, yeah, bark burn, yeah, best avoided. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, in terms of chainsaw accidents, that's probably the least. Uh, but people <laughs> are not aware of the, you know, they're like, be careful of the blade, you know, and and you don't think about limbs coming up rather than falling down or trees moving str in strange ways as you, yeah, that's. I that's did a lot thing. well. I, I read well, you know, I, I prepped, but uh, but I was not prepared for the extent to which uh, the the weight caused the limb that the ladder was on to rise. It was it was special, mm -hmm. <laughs> a special moment for the weekend. <laughs> it is. It is. I'm, cl I'm glad you survived. I'm glad you survived. And you know who else survives? Our listeners. Our listeners survive probably not they because endure. they listen, but we can. They endure. They abide. Our audience abides, and we appreciate that. We appreciate that so much that we take questions or comments from them via all of the various places where we interact with those fans. And so with that in mind, we will take some today, including the first one, which comes to us via Twitter from Nigel Rush, who says, love the show. Mounts. What do you do with them? We buy a mount, we ride it for a day, we go into a dungeon, and they aren't there when we get out, or we leave by a different exit. So I am 8th level and walking all the time. I don't buy them anymore. What do you do? Is there an answer? It drives me crackers. 8th level and walking for days like a peasant because my horse was eaten by an owlbear or just buggered off on its own accord. Mm. Keep doing what you're doing. The show gets better and better. All the best from South Wales, UK, Nigel. So thank you, Nigel, for listening. And, you know, this is this is an important question. And I see in my future designing a new third level spell called Uber or Lyft, or maybe both. Very convenient, although the gold piece cost can add up after, after <laughs> a bit. Um, oh, wow. So what, what, what do you think, Teos? 
I mean, it is fascinating. I, I think about this kind of subject. I, I love the question. It's hilarious. Hats off for, for making it that amusing a question. Um, I do think about these kinds of changes that just used to be a thing and now they're like not a thing. And, and for a really long time, it was like, you know, oh, you've got a quest. So therefore you need horses and you'd get on horses and you'd figure out your movement rate and all of this seemed to matter. And then the horses got spooked and like third edition was the whole like, oh, well, is it a war horse? No. Well, then it, you can't attack or you have to get off or weird things would happen. And after third edition, people were like, no, we don't care. Like, just assume that you're always walking or it doesn't matter whether you're walking or mounted. Like, yes, this is a critical thing. Go get it. But you can walk there. It's OK. It's back. Spend the night. You know, like there's just it's it's a weird it is a weird abstraction all in the name of, I guess, just not having it fall apart if you don't have a mount. But so what what do I do? I think that mounts, I think this is the reality. I'm curious what you think, Sean. I think that this is the reality we deal in. Uh, just like having too many hit points uh, is a reality we live in. Um, you Your mounts are not going to go with you into the dungeon. They, they are not going to matter most of the time. So as DMs, we have to pick our battles of when we want them to matter and then make them a big deal. Mm -hmm. uh, and by that, I mean, like, if you think about the movie Avatar, uh, the, the, the one where everybody's blue, uh, well, a lot of significant population, um, you have to, like, go tame the mount. And then you use it in this significant way to turn the tide of a battle, like that kind of thing. That makes mounts fun. Um, MCDM has the the rules that that uh, Willie Beale created about for mounts that are fantastic mounts, like things like that. Make them cool and dramatic and interesting, uh, or use them solely in a little low level thing. But otherwise, it is what it is. Get them out of there. Pretend you're not walking. Yeah, yeah, and I I agree. I agree to a point, and I. I am not the kind of person who is let's count every torch. Mm -hmm. Let's count every day of rations. You know, let's do use encumbrance. I, I'm not that person. I can be if that's what the game is. But then I don't want the game too complex on the other side. Mm -hmm. Right. If I'm keeping track of all of this stuff, I don't want to also have to keep track of 42 different actions and, the huge list of spells, right? My, my yeah. attention can only go so far. Players can't even keep track of important NPCs who they're escorting, right? <laughs> or, you know, you, you rescued, right, Bud from, uh, Bud the Elf from the dungeon. Okay, now we're leading Bud the Elf out of the dungeon. And seven encounters later, we're like, Whatever happened with Bud? We just crossed a chasm. We got attacked by a dragon, uh, right? We had to swim under this bridge, and uh, half of us couldn't even hold our breath. We get out of the dungeon. We're like, where's Bud? Because Bud, while he's important to the story, doesn't resonate in our minds because we're we're playing a game in a certain way. Yeah, we are. And so, you know, I, I appreciate what you're saying here, Teos, in that if you're going to have these elements, make them cool for certain things. Mm -hmm. But that still brings them, it still illuminates the problem of they're there, but they're not important. And now they're important again, and we need to go back and figure 
things out retroactively. Wait, yeah. do we have a mount? Do we have a trained mount? Do now if you're playing a mounted character, which you can in fifth edition, but it's not as important as mm-hmm. it was in third edition, where you had real yeah. like subclass type. Yeah. Uh so it's a matter of deciding what's important for your game and then doing it. We're going to have a question later, which will come back to actually this Mm -hmm. question. Uh, But it's, yeah, it's what's important. Where do you need to focus your attention in your game to make everyone happy? And if keeping track of whether you have a mount or not um, is not important to your game, then don't make it important to your game. Walking mm-hmm. around like a peasant when you're eighth level, don't you don't need to. While it's funny, right? Yeah, you're like, oh boy, funny. yeah. <laughs> I just saved the kingdom, but now I have to walk for four days to get back to the castle uh, <laughs> because my amount's gone. Uh, just say you're back at the castle, yeah. right? That's well, that's the that's the answer. And and two things: one is if you want to reflect the fact that they're eighth level, then give them an airship. Right. Like Storm King's Thunder right. has that has the path forward if you'd like it. Right. Uh, Ack Inc. can help you make it right. The, the the hardback book like you can have fantastic ways to get to and fro, you know, give them a base of operations and hirelings who run the ship, the locomotive, the whatever it is that, you know, magically moves them back and forth because they're cool and awesome characters who shouldn't be walking. Then you can do that um, if you want the mounts to matter then you will need to come up with tricks to remember them, just like your NPC example, right? You need to have like a card for them in initiative so that you always remember, oh, the mounts, the mounts do the following, right? They back off or, you know, they start moving away. One of them needs to make a check and you deal with that level of reality if that's pleasing to you, but it probably isn't. So it's probably okay to forget them in most cases. And and yeah, maybe just make the other characters special sometimes. I am now officially writing down the next great idea that I'm working on, which is an adventure where you play the mounts of <laughs> the characters who go into the dungeon. You're left behind. Oh man. Adventure where you play the mounts. God, that is a great idea. You know, what's also yeah. cool is you could have like a little template that when your character is riding you, then you get to use their thing. Like as a yeah. daily kind of thing. Like, you know, exactly. Or a piece of their gear that they strap to you. You could use that. Right. Love it. I, I want to play this. This is this is the uh, this is the next thing I'm working. Let's see my schedule. It look for this in 2037. Mm, I'm excited. Uh, but boy, it's going to be mm. the best eighth edition D and D adventure that you play. <laughs> okay. So Nigel, two thumbs up on that question. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, next we have Matthew Heimbecker, 9055 via YouTube. Watsy. Would Watsy ever consider making a game other than D and D? They have produced other games in the past. Why not now? So I'm going to first start by assuming that you mean role playing games, because there is this little thing called Magic: The Gathering that you might have heard of that Wizards of the Coast does produce. Uh, now, in terms of role playing games, then, great question, right? They used to make Top Secret. Well, t- when they were TSR, yeah. they made Top Secret. They made Boot Hill. They made uh, Gamma World. They made a bunch of other things. They made Gamma World for fourth edition. Uh, so they do. Why aren't they doing it now? 
I think the question, the the answer is this: It costs you X amount of money to make a game, and it costs you X amount of money to make a product for that game, and then you hope to sell X plus Z money money when you sell it. So Z would be your profit, X would be the money that you paid for creation, advertising, and so on and so on. So regardless of the game or the product you're making, it's going to cost X to make that game. Whether you're making a D&D adventure or a Gamma World adventure or a Boot Hilled adventure or a top secret game, it's going to cost you X to develop, design, market, produce that game. So that at, the question then is, where are you getting the Z from? Where are you getting your profit from? And if you are trying to sell a book to 10 million people who play D&D, the chances of you making Z mm. increase. Whereas if you're selling it to a thousand people, the chances of you making Z profit goes down dramatically. That's the simple answer to that question mm -hmm. is what's your going to be your return on investment? And why would you sell something to a small, tiny niche uh, audience when you could sell it to your big audience? Uh, there's more to this, but I'm going to let Teo step in now. Well, I'll add that, you know, your answer is very true for any role-playing game company, but especially for Wizards, a big thing is branding. And there isn't really a, a, a reason to water down the branding of D&D &D with another game that would almost compete with its own space, unless you really could catapult other things. You're not just in the business of product lines for role-playing games. You're in the business of the role-playing games catapulting things, right? You want the Baldur's Gate 3 video game, and you want that kind of synergy and the movie and the whatever. And see, so if you just throw in alternative, like they did around third edition or Star Wars with fourth edition, you're either using someone else's IP, the opposite of what you want, or you're promoting another brand that is now, it, it just confuses the landscape. I, I think a good question is why did Hasbro choose to farm out to Renegade, mm -hmm. G.I. Joe, um, what was it? G.I. Joe. Transformers. Transformers and My Little Pony. My Little Pony to be made by, you know, a different game studio. That's a really interesting question. My guess is it was as simple as availability mm -hmm. um, and focus. You know, they didn't want it probably to exist in the D&D team that would have then had to, like, keep making it or whatever. They kind of did want it to just be over there and see how it does, is my guess. And so they they probably concertedly made that choice of, like, no, we don't want this to become a studio thing. We want it to be a one shot, an offering, and, and done. Yeah, that's 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 a great answer as well. Role playing games make less money than everything else you could sell. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, yeah, want, it, it, yeah, it's true. You want I mean, a game I, I, that's going to support those. And other there things. are other businesses that operate that way too, right? Like I work with a lot of right. companies in the chemical industry, and there was once a guy who who said to them, to to a number of chemical companies that were in this room, you know, the bubblegum industry makes more money than you do. Mm -hmm. The answer isn't necessarily switch to bubblegum, but I mean, you just got to face the fact that you are in a hard industry. So what are you going to do with that? challenge right <laughs> you could sell it all and buy a bubblegum company <laughs> yeah it's that's a that's about as good an answer as you're going to get out of me anyway so there you go so uh thank you for that question matthew and finally megan j via discord uh on our patreon what 
do you do when your players have waded into a slog whose outcome actually matters to the story? So in this context, a situation where you must must push forward to resolve an important plot point, but the current play is not mm. fun. And th this is this is a really, really good question, to be honest, uh, much deeper than the, you know, two sentences that that it that the question actually mm -hmm. uh, involves. And we see this a lot. I love Mike Shea talking about this, mm. uh, where he says, I'm in a four hour adventure at a convention. And we spend the first hour, you know, walking through the swamp and making 27,000 survival checks that don't really matter in the long run. And then at the end of the adventure, uh, the DM has to cut the fight with the two lich dragons short because you run out of time. And so the question that was asked here was, you know, how do you get through the slog to get to the fun? And my question is then, why is what you're doing not fun? And what is stopping you from skipping what is not fun and getting to the important stuff? Yeah. Uh, Teos, what do you what do you think there? No, absolutely. I think that we can get as DMs wedded to the material in front of us. I've said this before on the show, but sometimes I will run an adventure that I have written and I'm reading it. And for whatever reason, maybe it's my mistake, maybe it's whoever did the layout, whatever. I can't find the thing I'm supposed to do or I can't remember it. And now I'm looking up my own adventure, what I told DMs to do. Why am I doing that? Like, I should just do what I think I should do. It's not like I can't come up with it. I did come up with it. Right. Like I can make this up and and. So I think that for me, the answer to this is if you see that the play is not fun, but you feel you must get to the end, find another way to the end. Change it up. You've got nothing to lose. It already is lame, right? Like it's a slog. So change it uh, is my thought. Change it so that it's at least interesting or you tested something, you tried something. I would do something to get it out of there and move it forward. And, and Mike Shea's comment's a very good one that you don't want to, you know, spend all your time on a thing that isn't fun. And then when you get to the good stuff, you have to hand wave it because you're out of time. Like just accelerate through the bad stuff, whatever the, the monsters offer a truce, the anything, you know, somebody turns on them. You discover a clue that accelerates, turns the tide of battle or that reveals that it's unwinnable. You know, whatever it is that you need to do to make it accelerate that out of there. Yeah. In terms of like creative writing, there's this old truism that says show don't tell and for the most part that's good advice it is generally better to show things happening in the story mm -hmm. than to tell the reader what happened bluntly but sometimes it is better to tell than to show because the showing might not be fun or important whereas the telling can get the important thing out on the table which you can then draw up on to tell a better story. And in role-playing games, it's no different. Sometimes the showing, the gameplay yeah. itself, doesn't come out to be as fun as you thought it was going to be. So you want to get to the telling, what happens in this story, so we can go on from there. And a lot of times this slog can be combat. It can be a combat where you don't, 
realize that every monster you put in has a super high armor class and have many hit points and does practically no damage. So round after round after round, the players are beating on this brick wall and doing very few hit points, but they are in no risk either. And when when something like that happens, you can either skip it, say, oh, the, the, the monsters or the foe realizing that they are overmatched, drop their weapons and run. Mm-hmm. And because of that, you can now tell what happens. You rescue the princess, you rescue the merchants. Uh, and let now let's get on with the fun part of the story, which is what quests do the merchants or the princess now give you? And what rewards do you get? And now we're going to move the story forward. Yeah. Can you I can add to that? also switch things up? Yeah. Just yeah. want to quickly add to that, that this show don't tell. Um, sometimes all the showing in the world doesn't tell. <laughs> so, you know, because the players mm-hmm. might think, well, True. maybe this is the, the challenge is that we must persevere through this slog and just keep doing exactly what we're doing. And that's where it can be important. If, if you're hoping for a change that's sort of player driven, then communicate that, right? Take the fighter or the barbarian or whoever you think might have some knowledge of tactics and whatever and give them a, a role and based on how they roll give them some amount of information from the minimum necessary to a whole lot that says essentially no matter what they roll that's going to give them some flavor of this is not the path forward or this is why it's such a slog and you understand you know why this is going on and it's because of this and then if anything needs to change they know what it is that they need to do differently. And they feel like, oh, yeah, I figured it out, guys. Here's what we, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all all of that's true. And the nature of the slog can also help you decide how to fix it. If it's a slog with combat, sum up the the combat into one big explosive something. Mm. Uh so within five minutes, you have everything wrapped up. If the slog is this long exploration scene where it's just description after description after description with no choices and no possible failures and nothing interesting of consequence, have two scenes and then turn it into a big combat. Yeah. Uh, so make whatever the slog involves turn it on its ear and do something completely different. Yeah. Which will then either break up the slog or just remove that sluggishness completely uh, from the game. Yeah. Agreed. All right. And now thank you, uh, Megan J for that. And now we can move into our news and commentary section, starting with poor Daisy. Daisy has gone missing. Uh, I have a feeling that Daisy was not long for this world in her bovine form, but Teos is going to tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I participated. I managed to do it. Things lined up. So somehow I was available around 11 11 a.m. every day for something like four days. And, uh, you know, last show we mentioned this, and it wasn't clear exactly what this was going to be. The day of the event, and even the second day of the event, no one really exactly understood what this was going on. But on the D&D Discord, Wizards ran an event about finding Daisy the cow, clearly as a tie-in promotional piece. 
into uh, the Fandelver and Below adventure, which we've all read by now. Just kidding, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> and it started with everybody in the server would choose a role. Rogue, wizard, barbarian, or bard. And the first day was pretty lackluster, especially if you listened last week to our, to our, I think it was last week or the week before, the blog that talked about choices and, you know, said, you know, an arbitrary choice. Well, that's exactly what we got. We got, do you go across the rope bridge or do you go down the stairs? And it was just a vote. And that's all we did that day. And the majority decided to go over the rope bridge. And some people tried to, like, think it through, right? But they were prescribing knowledge that we don't really have, right? Like, oh, well. You know, someone said the, the I bet the 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 um, rope bridge wouldn't support the cow's weight, so it certainly wouldn't have gone that way. And we're like, well, we don't know. We can't make any checks. We can't have a discussion with any DM. So who knows? And then some people said, well, you know, cows don't really go downstairs normally. They'll, they'll go upstairs, but not downstairs. Um, but you know, we have no idea whether the D and D team took that into amount into account. So it was just an arbitrary choice. The second and third day featured combat. Uh, they would post character sheets and we leveled up in between days and um and so the first day was a mind flare just sort of there and we all attacked it all you know however hundred number of people who were involved in this and it was kind of fun there was a bot that would parse whatever you wrote and see whether a word or keyword in there triggered at the bot if not it would ignore whatever you wrote so I wrote something saying sneak attack and that I was sneak attacking with my bow. It read sneak attack and said that I sneak attacked with my melee weapon. Okay, good enough. You know, fun. I did a bunch of damage. Yay. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and then anyone else who wrote sneak attack, that's the thing they got. Uh, and, you know, if you were a barbarian and you raged, no other words mattered. If the word rage was in there, that keyed the response. But if you didn't say the word rage and you just said the word axe, well, then you attacked with your axe. So it was a kind of interesting way of kind of botting response. Um, people yeah. seemed fairly satisfied with it. The uh, third day involved goblins that were sort of singing and eating. So they weren't necessarily hostile. And this mind flare came and sort of forced them to attack us. And a couple of us tried doing things like let's persuade the goblins or they had been singing, let's perform or intimidate. None of that seemed to be part of the bot keywords. It was all combat. So eventually we defeated the goblin or the uh, mind flare and the goblins. Uh, a moderator wrote that the goblins had you know, backed off, I think, sort of feeding off of what we did, like any good DM would. Um, we found 500,000 gold on the mind flare, which apparently was 200 gold each. I don't know that that was actual math, but I thought that was a hilarious way of writing it. Um, and then on the That's funny. final day, there were more of these sort of arbitrary choices that nothing really was there. It was descriptive, but nothing really told you like, you know, uh, two double doors or a small door. But we can't ask whether the small door fits a cow. So, you know, eventually we go out into the outside and we find Daisy has tentacles coming out of her and she runs uh, off into the distance forever changed. And uh, I guess we're all enrolled into a raffle, which sometime on Monday was going to be resolved. So that's uh, in, in, in my future, your past. So somebody will have won a thing <laughs> as, for participating. Cool. You know, I would say it was fun. It was nice to be involved with a bunch of random people doing things. And we saw some people from our Discord who were there. And, and you know, that was kind of fun. Um, you know, it could have been a better, but it sure could have been a lot worse. It was still fun. Yeah, yeah. It's 
the only thing that I I did not participate, but I heard you know several people talking mm-hmm. about it, is the people who go to Discord are like your most involved people. This looked like more of a fun marketing sort of thing, and so there might have, I guess. Maybe it drew people to the Discord. Maybe that mm-hmm. was part of it. Because uh, I, I, mean, I would love something like this if, if it was, you know, people who weren't going to be grumpy because they couldn't do their twenty-seven step trick to do the most damage. Right? It's, it's a, it's a <laughs> find the right audience for the right material sort of thing. And, and it sounds like it went off fine. So. Um, yeah, it was fine. It was, you know, I have, it was I have no, nothing else. I'd there. rather see them experiment than not. So, you know, so it goes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but if you are a dungeon master or are thinking of becoming one, you can now hear the secrets of dungeon mastering from Chris Perkins himself. Uh, on YouTube, Chris provided a presentation on DM skills. Uh, it talked about some of the things that you might have to decide as a dungeon master. Uh, you, I did not watch the entire thing. I skimmed it. Uh, mm-hmm. Teos, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an hour long, which I was really surprised. Um, I think I would have split that into several mm-hmm. videos, but but it's cool. I guess it's based on a presentation he's given before and, and has a bunch of slides. And so he, uh, maybe at PAX or one of the other conventions, he ran this. So he talked through it with uh todd who was doing the film and um and it had examples like what do you do if none of your players want to take on a quest you provided uh how do you handle a player that talks over others you know overall it was a good video with with a lot of useful advice done in in chris's style which is very pleasing to listen to it's intended clearly for new dms but you know he also as he said it was a refresher for people who just kind of want to have a confirmation that they're doing things the right way or maybe think through, you know, fine tune a bit your approaches. So I'd say it was really a great idea. Nice, nice use of, of the YouTube format and, and some nice, very good information for DMs who may be new to, the, to these kinds of decisions and questions. There you go. And that's available on YouTube with a link in our show notes. We got news last week that Roll20 has added Dungeon Scrawl for map making eventually so roll 20 has acquired dungeon scrawl and i realized that i had dungeon scrawl in my long list of links here in my browser that i've gone to and it's a really cool tool and so we all heard that dungeon scrawl was being added to roll 20 and it made many many people excited because it is a really quick and powerful tool for making maps and if you could just port that right directly into Roll20 and add tokens to it, that's amazing. And there was a demonstration and that showed how the integration might work. So it wasn't, we've got it integrated. It wasn't that <laughs> here is how we plan to integrate it. It's, this is one way that it might be integrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were your thoughts, Deus? Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was a bit of maybe pushing it a bit in terms of making it. I feel like a lot of people hearing the announcement or starting to read the announcement thinking, oh, cool, I want to use this now. But it really is a forward looking thing. Um, 
I think some of it is, well, they've acquired this or made some sort of business partnership with it, but it sounds like an acquisition. So they now, you know, own the site. Um, they, the site will continue working as it does and they will be integrating this in and how much of it gets integrated. It's hard to say at least the very basic idea, which is very powerful, very cool that you can just easily draw, you know, a rounded edge cavern or a straight edge room with a sort of hatching shading that goes around the edges that, that you know, is a, a nice simple look for creating dungeons. So that's great. That's a wonderful addition. Uh, and a lot faster than a lot of other ways that you could make a map on the fly. Um, so we'll just hope that it happens soon <laughs> rather than later um, so that people can actually enjoy that. But yeah, Andrew Searles was, gave the demo and he, he had been on, on our show when we interviewed Roll20. So, you know, again, a takeaway that Roll20 is not standing still. They're adding lots of features. They're looking at what the tool doesn't have. And that all is a really huge positive, right? They continue to make investments look at what the platform needs and, and make changes, that's a win. And even if uh, you don't have Roll20, you can also always check out Dungeon Scrawl uh, as a tool because it's it's pretty powerful. One of our favorite bloggers, D, uh, DM David, has ranked these controversies. He is going through in a series of blogs the top 10 controversies all time in Dungeons & Dragons. What has he already covered? Uh, number 10 is TSR trashing the original Palace of the Silver Pr Princess adventure. Uh, number nine, uh, TSR being sued by Tolkien by, because they used Hobbit's Ents, uh, Nazgul, and Balrogs. Uh, eight, TSR demanding that creators stop sharing their creations on the internet. I'm still mad. Seven, Watsy moves away from race. What's that? I'm still mad. You know, I was thinking to myself when I was reading this article, as much as I'm well acquainted with it because I lived through it, like, I think for me, that was the original, like, like the way some people feel about the OGL now, that was my first moment like that. Way back then, you know, in, in the mid 90s, just this, that they were telling us they owned the word Medusa and that we couldn't, you know, write about mm -hmm. Spelljammer on the internet. I mean, just just wild claims and it was so maddening and frustrating and back then there were so few ways in which you could engage with wizards in any official kind of anybody from the company it was really just uh tsr back then uh, it was so maddening to deal with yeah. tsr and that and people would write you know t dollar sign r and it, it was really yeah. to me that was like my ogl moment and maybe why the ogl didn't amaze me much because i've been <laughs> through other versions of it but yeah. that was the one that really got me yeah and it also illustrates what we live through and are living through now with everyone saying oh it was so great when it was tsr they loved <laughs> the fans so much and they they were such a great company and they, and now wizards oh boo they you mm -hmm. know corporate and they they do all these horrible things tsr was just as bad if not worse uh, than wizards for all of the reasons you're giving and so yeah. many more uh, that some of us now are just like yes we've seen this before we will see it again we, will see it again. Uh, we just keep fighting the good fight yeah and uh, so all that is in dm david's blog uh talking about that number seven is wizards of the coast moving dnd away from using race uh as as a ter game term and how it handles humanoids as foes uh, six is deities and demigods pulling the Maldabonian and Cthulhu mythoi. Uh, th that's a that's a 
again, we've lived through it, but if mm -hmm. you don't know this whole controversy, you can read the M. David's blog about that because it's and, kind of an interesting story. And what was interesting is, you know, back in the days of low internet, we didn't really, we just, the story was always D&D &D did this without permission, which wasn't actually the case. And so right. Dean David breaks down that, that kind of myth that was there for a while of, of TSR breaking the rules, but really it was TSR not having, not feeling like it could get into a lawsuit over it. Uh, but then getting permission anyway, and then deciding not to do it because they were afraid that they would drive fans to other games, and that's why they pulled it. But we're always in the right, I guess, legally. They always had written permission. Interesting. Yeah, yeah it is. Uh, number five is the D&D splitting the game into AD&D and basic D&D to avoid paying David Arneson. And claiming that AD and D and D and D were two completely, totally different things. Um, speaking of TSR uh, and yeah. uh, questionable business practices, yeah, and so that's where we're at as of this recording. We we still need to hear four, three, two, and one from DM David. I know what one of them is going to be. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I think that might be number one. It just uh, might be. But hey. Who knows? Uh, so we, we love DM David's work. So you can check out his blog at dmdavid.com where they link in our show notes to this particular series. Hey, Acquisitions Incorporated has uh, put out a new or live play at, that was at PAX West. You saw it. What did you think, Teos? I got to enjoy it live. Uh, DM Chris Perkins does his usual great run. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Lots of amusing situations, including what to do when a ritual involves sacrificing babies. And that part alone, if you can just hunt down that part where they're at the goblins around a huge fire is just one of those Perkins moments of setting the players up. Uh, and the players, to their credit, handle it very well, both very in character and smartly to avoid one of the many complications that could have taken place. Um, and uh, I, I write here, viewer discretion as well, optional. But <laughs> it is a really fun. And all of it ties directly to the upcoming season two that they kickstarted. Um, that is premiering uh, September 20th at noon Pacific. So by the time you are hearing this, uh, probably... And there is a new Act Inc. YouTube channel that is, you know, at youtube.com at Acquisitions Incorporated instead of just the Penny Arcade channel. So you can go there and catch the PAX West show. And I think that's where they will be setting up the, um, the new season as well. A bit of creator and crowdfunding news. You can, if you are going to Gamehole Con, try a new game called Thunder Road Vendetta. Um, we're friends with and fans of Dave Chalker, and we're happy to see that he and Brett Myers uh, have designed the board game Thunder Road Vendetta and are running the game at GameholeCon. If you go there, you can uh, go to GameholeCon.com and go to the event section. We also link there in our show notes to see when and where that is happening. Any other thoughts about this, Teos? I mean, I've I've uh, been watching Dave talk about this board game. It sounds amazing. I did not back it on Kickstarter, um, but you know, I hear great things, and I would love to try it. But all of the times are conflicting. I basically already have a full schedule, 
So sadly, I can't play it. I'm going to have to, you know, pay him money to run one late at night. Um, but you should, if you are going to be at GameholeCon, you should definitely try it. It sounds like a really fun game. And a reminder, Sean, you and I will be there. We're going to record Mastering Dungeons live, which has been fun every time we've done it. And then I've put in links yeah. to both your events and my events because we're all running and doing different things, panels and games and stuff. So folks can click on those links in the show notes or just go to GameHole.com and search for our names and you'll you'll find the events there. I was happy and yet terrified to learn that it is less than a month away until GameHole.com. So I yeah. had to actually start paying attention to those things that I would be doing there. Uh, but if you're going to be there, please do come to the live recording or just say hi or sign up for one of our games. We would love to talk to you. Uh, the last bit of crowdfunding uh, creator news is the Festival of Tombs, a solo D&D 5e adventure from designer T.A. Gray is now available. And you always see some sort of solo game on on the top 10 list there. Mm-hmm. Um, so D&D being a game where you generally need lots of people to play and games fall through all the time, as I found out this weekend, uh, it's good to have a way to play by yourself sometimes. And these solo adventures give you the chance, Tomb of Festivals being one of them. What's the tagline? As initiate ghost hunters, you and your dwarven sidekick are tasked to find out why the annual awakening, a normally harmless spectral event, has turned deadly dangerous. Navigate the sprawling city of Chesteral, delve into dangerous dungeons, and discover the truth before the Festival of Tombs turns to bloody carnage. That is now available on Kickstarter with a link in our show notes. One last shout out, Teos. This is uh, this is near and dear to your heart, so I'm going to let you do yeah. that. Uh, we meant to do this a while back, but shout out to Bone, Stone, and Obsidian Podcast, which is uh, for sure my favorite Dark Sun podcast. And they've gone independent, much like Mastering Dungeons went independent some time ago. Um, hosts Robert Aducci and Jesse Hainig have left the Misdirected Mark Podcast Network. They now run the show on their own. You can find them at cast, C-A-S-T, .athos.org. Uh, though if you have subscribed to the show, like I have, it'll magically, and already has magically updated. I've been actually listening on the new feed for some time. And, and I'll say that their recent shows have had great interviews and coverage. They've gone back to talk to folks like Tony Dieterlisi. Uh, they've talked to all kinds of neat adventure designers. They've been covering different adventures and aspects of the setting. So if you'd all love Dark Sun, head to cast.athos.org or revisit them on your favorite podcast uh, app, Bone, Stone, and Obsidian. Really good show. And now, on our main topic here at Mastering Dungeons, we are going to get into part two of chapter nine of the 2014 Dungeon Master's Guide. This here is the good stuff. We are talking about the Dungeon Master's Workshop, adventuring options, combat options, creating a monster, casting spells, and all all of that good stuff. We will definitely not get through this whole uh, part, the rest of the chapter in part two, but we are going to dig deep and talk about some of these beautiful, beautiful options. Uh, We got partway through adventure options last time, so let's dig right back in talking about firearms, explosives, and alien technology. (laughs) 
because who doesn't love some firearms, explosives, and alien technology? Well, apparently people so it doesn't go into the book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, because it's an option. It's not in the main rules. So uh, that's who. Mm-hmm. Teos, get us started here with this. Yeah, we, we get rules for sort of a breakdown of three categories, Renaissance, modern weapons and alien ones. And they do a really nice job of giving you very straightforward rules that cover kind of a little. They give you a little taste of possible complexity, but it's not like, you know, you open a book of spycraft or D20 modern even or you know, where there are just so many options. So this is just a very simple, like, hey, look, you know, there's a rifle, there's a pistol. That's it. And there are things like, uh, you know, burst fire, spend 10 ammo, creatures in a 10-foot cube, make a deck save or take the damage. Um, we get costs, which is a little silly. So, like, Renaissance, okay, uh, you know, a bullet costs three gold. But then in modern and, and beyond, the weapons are just and the ammo are priceless. The idea is just, you know, you can't find this, you can't buy it, there's no price to it, there's no no concept of it. Uh, it's that rare. Um, damage, a musket is 1d10 piercing, modern is 2d8 or 2d10, laser rifle is 3d8, and then the antimatter rifle, 6d8 necrotic. Um, yeah, kind of cool. What would you think about this, Sean? I just wish they had taken the next step of saying, if you do introduce these things to the game, you might want to be aware of blank. So I I looked at it from the game design point of view of what is this going to do if I introduce this to my game? So I start with the firearms of the Renaissance. And I'm like, pistol and musket, okay. Costly, you're going to have to pay 250 or 500 gold to get a pistol or a musket. All right, what's the damage? One to 10 piercing. That's that's like any other weapon. That's fine. Musket, 1d12 piercing. No problem there. Weight, yes. Ammunition, good. All right, normal ranges. And loading. Okay, so I can't do anything very special. It'd be like loading a crossbow. I need to mm-hmm. stop. I can't shoot seven times in a round. I have to stop and yeah. load the weapon. Excellent. So then I go to the next one, which is the modern items, modern pistols, revolvers, hunting rifles, and stuff. And instead of loading, they have this reload uh, tag attribute. And it's so it's you can make a number of shots before you need to reload it. But then you must reload it using an action or a bonus action. And my first thought thought was, no, don't use bonus actions. Bonus actions, we've been told over and over again, are these special things that only classes, you know, have abilities. That's where bonus actions belong in the class section so don't put it on a piece of equipment second thing is all right so now if i'm a fighter i don't have a loading ability so if i get three attacks in a round i can shoot this pistol three times by by rules unless i'm reading something wrong i'm like okay so what sort of damage are we looking at (laughs) um with an automatic rifle all right 2d8 piercing that's quite powerful at three times around. Um, uh, all right, I'm I'm cool with that, but just give me a the new DM. Hey, if you give people a shotgun, they're going to be able to to shoot you know, or a rifle, automatic rifle. They're going to be able to shoot it several times in a round. 
So be wary of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And then we get into, right, the futuristic stuff where you're talking about the antimatter rifle or the laser rifle where you're shooting 3D8 damage uh, and you can shoot 30 times before you have to reload. We, uh, and we do get a table. What if you're hasted, right? If, yeah. We do get a table of figuring out alien technology. And we're told that, you know, you should have to do some troubleshooting to even understand how it operates and what it is. But if you ever took a look at the classic uh, Barrier Peaks adventure, it had a nightmare of a table that was a diagram that looks like a conspiracy theory chart with all these different roles that you end up traveling along as you make these decisions. And most of the time, the thing would just explode in your face or, or you're shooting it the wrong way. And in fact, one of the drawings, I loved it because you couldn't really figure out which way to point it. And it was the opposite of what you might mm-hmm. think. Like there's like a power crystal that's actually like gathering the energy, but it shoots out the other hand. And, then, uh, and so it was very funny. You could you could have fun with it. And But in this in these rules, you don't blow it up or you might expend a charge is the worst, but you don't cause the thing to malfunction um so you it, you know it would have been nice to have some advice here on hey if you introduce this stuff you've got to introduce very little of it because you can't have this haunting your mm-hmm. campaign until the end of time um you know you can't give them limitless ammo you've got to have some real strict limits um so that it doesn't become too much like yeah give your fighter the heyday of that time they fired the anti-rifle you know all combat long but then it was out of ammo and life resumed to being normal (laughs) precisely precisely and it only takes two sentences to to say that in a way that would be super helpful to to dms yeah but yeah everything else there i'm like okay cool this this gives me a blueprint for if i want to do something a little different with with these rules i can model based on this Um, so i'm cool with that and the next thing or the last thing under adventure options are plot points and what do plot points do plot points allow players to change the course of the campaign introduce plot complications alter the world and even assume the role of dm and then the next sentence if your first reaction to reading this optional rule is to worry that your players might abuse it, it's probably not for you. And and I like I read that I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's exactly that's a, the perfect bit of advice said so succinctly yet so perfectly. Uh, this is a a very fun way to play for certain game masters and certain players. For others, it is the opposite of what of what you might consider fun. Yeah. So what do they mean by plot points, Teos? So what they mean is really quite fascinating. I, like, I, I'm still kind of stunned that this isn't in this book. Um, you get a plot point, mm-hmm. and you can spend one per session, and you regain it after spending it. So you might have it, but can't use it because you already used it once this session. And then you have, we're given three options of what you can do with a plot point. Option one, you can add some element to the setting or situation. The examples given are, you find a secret door, or you decide an NPC appears, or you decide that a monster turns out to be a long lost ally who was polymorphed. I'm like, whoa, those are powerful options, right? It isn't like they might give me a clue or something. It's like, this is, I'm changing reality into what I want it to be. 
Um, option two is like option one, but furthermore, the player to their right must add a complication. So yeah, player one chose to add a secret door, but the other person chooses to put a trap on it that teleports everywhere someone else in the dungeon. And that's the example given. I'm like, oh, that would be contentious. Like, I wanted a secret door to go to this place, and you sent me over there? Like, that's grounds for argument. Uh, option three, spend a plot point to become the DM. Your PC is an NPC until you change again. And the whole idea here is that DMs can just, like, players can spend plot points to just move the game into completely different directions over time and and wow i i was really impressed by this sean <laughs> what do you think yeah oh i i i mean there would be players who i would pay money right now to play this way with right i would in a good it way would be the most fun i would yeah. probably have oh yeah for sure <laughs> yeah. uh then there are players who i would pay money not to be in the same time zone as them <laughs> if they were being if this were the way that things were going yeah. to play and it all depends on the kind of player that you have the kind of game master you are and the kind of stories and game experiences that you want but just the fact that it's there and the fact that it lets people know that this is an acceptable way to play D&D is a very powerful statement yeah so you know i um as I was reading this, I thought to myself, gee, I'm wondering, like, all these optional rules in here, is this a vestige of the original idea that D&D Next had, where it started saying, like, you know, they're going to be optional modules that could allow you to use different styles. You know, is that why we end up with all these, all these optional rules, where they're sort of like, you know, cutting room uh, ideas that they had considered adding to 5e, the design team had, but then kind of were like, you know what, let's just put this in this back of this book. Or was it, you know, something else? And so I reached out to one of the the team members that designed 5th edition and was part of the the major team with um, the uh, D&D Next design. And they said, you know, if I remember correctly, it was a bit of all three. The core system tested well, but we suspected that it wouldn't be a perfect fit for everyone. The system was built for flexibility, so we figured we would show it off a bit in the DMG. I think the options were all designed after the final 5e system set it into place. They're likely a mix of options that basically Rodney, Peter, Mike, Rob were all personally interested in. Um, so I said, for example, the replacing the flat proficiency bonus or the die was a rule that some of us liked, but didn't test that well. So for the minority that liked it, we wanted to keep that mo that option in to let them use it. And I thought that was a really fascinating answer. And nice to see that historical perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and this, you know, this what we just read shows that there is a wide variety of play styles that are supported by this. And you could do worse than to try it out with yeah. players and game masters that that you love. I would love to say, okay, I'm going to be their DM at first, but I'm going to have a, a player character as well. And when somebody is ready to do something really cool with with the story that's ongoing, use your plot point, step in, and uh, and off we go. Yeah, that's wild. So those were the adventuring options. Now we have combat options. What are these combat options? 
They are alternative ways to handle combat. And the main risk we are told of adding some of these rules is slowing down play. So thank you for taking that next step and saying, even if it's a very general statement, that this could slow down play. Uh, we'll talk first about the initiative variants that they provide. Um, the first is just an initiative score. You don't roll initiative with this option. You take 10 and you add your dexterity modifier. And that's the that's your initiative score, which you use every time. I know. It's down uh, on die rolling. Just say, I know a DM who uses this option at conventions, uh, which is cool because he does it not just with his group. He will have them sit in this order. And so then you always know, like, you know, just play goes clockwise. And and I find it very fascinating. I, I don't like it in principle, but tables, I, I've actually never played with the system, but but he has had a lot of folks say, you know, that was kind of nice. Wouldn't necessarily do it all the time, but like, it really does speed up play a ton and everybody always knows who's going. It's always in that same order. There's some advantages to that. Yeah. Yeah. If, if I was running a, a, like a learn to play game, mm -hmm. I would absolutely do that because mm -hmm. I only, if I have 45 minutes to run a game, the last thing I need is yeah. rolling dice. Who knows how good folks are at math, mm -hmm. uh, working all of that out. So that's one option here in the book second option is side initiative record initiative for each uh, pc and monster and then arrange everyone in the in the correct order remembering where you are in the uh, because remembering where you are in the, in the list can bog the game down mm -hmm. so under this variant players roll a d20 the you roll a d20 as the game master um, neither side has any modifiers and whoever rolls the highest wins if you win as the game master, you go first. Mm -hmm. Then the players go. Uh, if the players win, vice versa. They choose. Their side goes first. They decide what order. And then it switches back over to your side. Thoughts yeah. about that? Uh, I like it a lot as a way to deal with things when PCs are grouped up or, or sides are grouped up for some reason. So like ship combat, it's excellent. Because you want to sort of represent that whole vessel and not deal with the what am I doing when related to where I want to do this when I'm 50 feet away. So you just handle the whole ship moving and doing things and then the other ship moves and does things. And so that, that can be a nice reason to use side initiative. Um, this is the way I used to always do things, you know, back in AD&D, you know, every side rolls a, a die. Mm -hmm. And we didn't do more than that. Like we did not do choose your actions or a collar or anything. We would just, you know, side went. So perfectly fine, works fine. And we're told this variant encourages teamwork and makes your life as a DM easier because then you can coordinate monster tactics as well. Uh, on the downside, the side that wins an issue can gang up on enemies and take them out before they have a chance to act, mm -hmm. uh, which is very true. And again, two short sentences tell you exactly what's good and what's problematic about uh, using this all the time. And the last initiative variant we're given is speed factor. So some DMs think that doing initiative the way it's set in the rules is too uh, predictable. And you always know you're running you first, you second, you third, you first, you second, you third, again and again and again. And then players can use that knowledge to influence their decisions. So speed factor 
is an option that introduces more uncertainty into the combat at the cost of speed of play. So under this variant, the participants roll initiative each, each round, and each round, the character and monster chooses an action, which then modifies their initiative score. So things are going to change from round to round. Things are going to be much more unpredictable, and things will change based on if you want to do something quick, you better choose a an action that has a shorter mo uh, initiative modifier time as opposed to something that has a long one. Uh, what do you think about that? I hate it. Um, I always hated speed factor. The idea that, you know, my, my like there are things like if you're tiny, you're faster. Yeah, except when you're not, you know, if I'm huge, I'm slower. Yeah, except when you're not, you know, like it. it it's it's too too much. Um, I'm wielding this kind of weapon, or I'm casting a spell. I, I find it dissatisfying. I like other options better. So like, there's a clock for initiative in Arcanus that you know when you will go next is a number of cubes based on what kind of action you took. I think that is a better way to handle it with more feedback and more balance to these various options, and the game is built for it. Or um, there's some other games that will do options around this kind of idea. And, and, and I think it's, again, focusing the game on this and building for it. I don't like this as a tacked-on system for 5e. What do you think? I, I agree. Uh, I, this is one of those rules, and there are several in here, where it sounds good when you're coming up with it. And then when you actually play with it, you realize how clunky it is, how complex it is, how prone to abuse it can become. Uh, and you usually end up going to something simpler and more standard. Yeah. And I think this would probably fall into that category as well. It's also really hard to announce your action at the start of your turn. And, and then get locked into it. And the idea that you just forgo your action if you don't take it, right? I'm going to cast Fireball. By the time it gets to my turn, there's only two creatures that I can get. Now I don't want to. So my choice is either a really disappointing Fireball or not doing anything. Mm -hmm. the, the, that's a dissatisfying play too often, I find. And, and hurts some characters more than others, right? Because the Barbarian is just going to go up and attack things every single round, almost. The Wizard deals with this kind of down time you know or down moment a lot more and it, it started making me think of ways that you could do it where you have two phases to a combat first mm -hmm. everyone does their actions and then everyone takes their moves after everyone mm -hmm. has done their actions then the question becomes do you want to be the first person to move or the last because <laughs> if you're the first person to move you have to to do it and then everyone else can react to what you have done yeah. So it's sort of, it's an interesting uh, thing that I've toyed with in the past of doing um, and wondering how it changes gameplay. Uh, yeah. You know, it doesn't work great with D&D &D always, but for other game systems it might. So yeah. it's a shadow, uh, shadow so, the demon. It's a fun Lord. thing to think about as a game designer. Shadow the demon Lord, right? With its fast and slow turn. Like you get to decide, do you want to move and attack? Or do you want to just do a quick attack? Do you want to just move? Then you can go faster and get in there by sacrificing how much you can do. And that forces 
roughly half the players to take a very fast turn. So combat is very fast because you're doing that, right? This is almost the opposite, as they note, right? You're going to overthink it. Then you're going to finally choose. Then you might be disappointed <laughs> or surprised. Yeah. Then we get into action options. This section provides new action options for combat. They can be added as a group or individually to your game. So what are some of these actions that people uh, that are not good enough to be or not prevalent enough to be in the main rules, but put here in the Dungeon Master's Guide? It's an interesting list. First is climb onto a bigger creature. And as soon as I read that, I'm like, yep, new players, they, they, I always get somebody, you know, who's like, I want to climb up on top of the blank. And uh, as a game master who wants to encourage storytelling, you just sort of make it up on the fly. Well, this gives you actual rules for it. What do we think of those actual rules, Mr. Abadia? Uh, I don't like them. <laughs> it just, mm -hmm. I, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't like any of these really. Um, all of these options, climbing under bigger creature, disarming, marking, overrunning, shove aside, tumble. I either feel like the game already covers them well enough or you want it to be circumstantial. Um, I, this is the kind of thing where I think you're, you're, you're taking away from what you want the game to be, right? Like like marking, either it you want to bake it into your system. Like 4th edition had the idea that when you were a defender class, you could mark an opponent and it meant a number of things. And your powers triggered off of it, your attacks, your feats, all of it. You could do special things. And so that was it was system-wide, right? And enemies did it to you too. The idea that just you're going to say, hey, I'm marking them. Uh, I get advantage on opportunity attacks. I'd rather that be the kind, if, if we're going to have a, that light a rule, instead make it a conversation and just, you know, I want to try to keep this guy pinned down here. Great. Um, here's a, a way you could do that in this situation. And let's just make it situational calls and, and, and encourage that kind of discussion between players rather than trying to pin down with what I find to be sort of lackluster rules. Mm -hmm. I dare say okay. So. What do you think? Yeah. No, I, I'm in the same boat. Uh, you know, as, like I said, when I first read this list, I was like, okay, this is something that I've had, except for Mark. Mm -hmm. Everyone, like new players especially, say, can I do this? Or I do this. And then I, I'm i like, well, there's no rule for that. So as as an improv game master, I find a way for them to do that. It's often at a risk or a consequence, but they do it. Yeah. Uh, but I can see some DMs say, no, you cannot climb onto a bigger creature or disarm someone or shove someone aside or run past someone or tumble past someone because it's not in the rules. So this, you know, these sort of give a framework for those things, which I think is okay. Um, the fine, bigger I guess question the question, is, Sean, is usually these things there's a reason right like disarming is one of the stupidest things you can do in the edition and let's by stupidest i mean the least pleasing like i disarm you cool on my turn i pick up the thing again as a free action you know 
so nothing happened. When I want to disarm, what I want to tell the DM is, look, I'm looking to make sure they can't get this thing. What can I do to do that? And this rule doesn't actually help me with that, right? Um, some of them kind of do like shove aside, you know, yeah, I want to shove them to this side. But I, again, I just feel like that can be part of the conversation. And I'd rather all of this space, you know, essentially a half. Actually, it's all, yeah, a page and uh, about a page and a half, so, you know, half a page, um, you know, a little over that. It, it, I'd rather it be um, used for how to adjudicate interesting things like this rather than giving a specific engagement methods. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree in, in the sense that disarming, especially it looks cool in the movies. Right. And so those players who come to the game from that media, uh, want to try that without realizing exactly what you said that mechanically it's it's not pleasing not only is it not mechanically uh pleasing it can be overpowered in certain oh. situations uh right where the the, the creature wielding the double two-handed huge magical flaming sword as soon as you take that away from the creature it becomes almost impotent, right? It's doing yeah. one plus strength damage now. My favorite And that's example, no fun either. My favorite example of this, Sean, is in third edition, there was an adventure where you were in a cloud castle and there was a well that just literally dropped thousands of feet below and there were feet below. And there was a, a enemy that had uh, dual wielding whips and would disarm two things and the list included your holy symbol. And back then in third edition, you could choose the square. So it would drop the things into the pit. So if you were a cleric, you could now basically not cast most spells. And what this led to was a rash of players writing on their character sheet that their holy symbol was, you know, secured to their armor, right? You know, <laughs> welded on. <laughs> from then on out because it was yeah. such a you know it just it, it could be right. so powerful if you that's the problem when you play by rules right versus play by intent right. and make calls it can it can be abused like that used against everybody yep yeah if, if there is a win button players will and so, sometimes game masters will just try to keep punching the win button and so that's why disarm Right, I understand why it's there because there are certain times in stories where you are trying to save the item from something, and so you need to be able to get it away from someone. Uh, but as you say, you can just make an opposed strength check or something to do that. You don't need too many rules if you can just make it a story-based mm -hmm. uh, ruling, if you will. And and this the overrun and shove aside and tumble, are, for me, are sort of important because of the rule that you can't pass through another creature. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it's important that you get past something that's blocking your way. And by the rules as written, you can't. 
And so then you get, you know, people, well, can I climb the wall, run up, right? They, they try to do these different things because it's so yeah. important to the story. But the, so I understand why these things are there. Uh, I would have like just, I would have loved to have push as a rule in, mm-hmm. in, in the base game. So just to have that shove aside be yeah. a, a tangential rule to it. If you need to move someone five feet in a different direction, other than straight away from you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we have alternate rules for hitting cover. Uh, this goes back to sort of, you know, third edition and before where there's a chance you hit the cover. And so the main reason this matters is if it's a creature providing cover, well, you might hit the, the creature. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, cleaving through creatures. When you kill a creature and you have extra damage left, you can use the same attack roll on the adjacent creature with or a creature within reach and add it, add any leftover damage to, to that creature. Yeah, fine. Um, and then we no. have no, it's, no, it's not. No, fine. Why? Oh, this is this is one of those rules that sounds like okay, cool. Yeah, it's it's fun. I hate it when somebody there's a one hit point monster and I do mm-hmm. twenty seven points to it, and oh, that should have. Think of if just stop if you are an experienced game master or player. And think about the 10,000 things that you might have to do in a situation exactly like this. All right. There's two creatures standing next to each other. One has this, you know, a 13 to hit this one, a 17 to hit this one. Okay. I hit him. I get rolled a 13. I hit this monster. He only had two hit points. I did 20. All right. So I want to do 18 to this one. Well, you only rolled a 13. So that can't hit the AC-17 monster. Well, I have a Bardic Inspiration. Can I use that? Well, no. no. Okay, same thing. This this monster, this monster, you're attacking with a flaming sword. Mm-hmm. You do slashing and fire damage. Well, how much damage to the original creature was fire? Oh, yeah. How much of it was slashing? Because this one's vulnerable over here. So, And that's just like two that I can come up with off the top of my head. What if you have advantage on one, but not right. You attack this one with advantage, but you don't have a a, vantage for this creature. You rolled two is, (laughs) is which, well, you don't have advantage on that one. Why should, or disadvantage or right. All of those things are going to come up and just turn into a, a mess. Well, and that's true of all of these things. Honestly, they're all, these all are like house rules that went through some thinking, but not all the thinking that they would if they were core. And and unfortunately, what what I don't think is said well enough in this section is there are going to be unintended consequences of all these, right? I mean, the next section, lingering injuries, um, you know, rules to have lingering injuries when you take a critical hit are reduced to zero but not killed or fail a death save by five or more. And it's things like, you know, you'll lose an eye or a limb and here are the magical ways you can remove it. And in one situation, it might be such a problem, like you can't wield your two-handed weapon that you use. But in another, well, you just have the spell to fix it and then it goes away instantly and nobody cares. Um, Mm -hmm. Another option they give here is to uh, the player can decide on the actual injury and create a flaw for it. And, And I think, again, you know, this is all fine if 
you want to think through all of the ways this is going to impact your game and deal with those. Mm -hmm. And your group is going to be okay with that because it's going to have a big impact if you do these things. Um, Massive damage, which used to be a big problem in third edition. When damage from a single source deals half your hit points or or more, roll on a table and you might be reduced to zero hit points or stunned. At least it doesn't kill you outright like in third edition, but it's still, you know, yeah. number of things that could happen because you took such a big blow. Yep. And last but not least, we get to morale under combat options, which is, you know, you're whacking away at a monster or a group of monsters. Uh, you want them to flee or you want them to surrender. How do you handle that? And again, I this is good, right? This is something that comes up mm-hmm. a lot. Sure. It's okay if there's a rule for it. Many game masters have figured out ways to handle it in terms of the story so that there's not a random role that can change something really, uh, really before it fits with the story. Uh, you want the story to come out the right way. Not, well, I just happened to roll a one on my wisdom save. So the yeah. lich uh, has, has surrendered even though it really doesn't need to yet. Uh, so it's good to have a rule there for reference, but you also need to, it has to pass the common sense test. Yeah, and morale is a touchy thing. I mean, I think player DMs, especially who, who grew up with it, uh, really appreciate it. I know Merrick Blackman has had um, a, a blog or a good blog article, blog article exploring the subject. Um, but I think for for a lot of folks, it's it's a dis- dissatisfying thing, and and I wrote about this a fair bit in um, the uh, Forge of Foes book that we did with Mike Shea and then Scott Fitzgerald Gray about the the idea of two things. One is that morale checks often don't reflect the story or the intent or the understanding players have, and so I I would like advice on establishing that up front, right? If this is a combat where the monsters are are interested in fleeing or interested in negotiations or things like that. You want to communicate that. And mm-hmm. if you're going to have them run away, understand that running away is really hard in fifth edition. So think about what you're going to do. Are you going to handle a chase scene like we talked about before? Mm-hmm. Are you going to, you know, hand wave it? Are you going to have some way that they can get away? Are they going to do something to distract the PCs? Because just going into a chase, like a normal, like run down the corridors kind of thing is going to be really long and boring and terrible. And you'll wish you just sat there and let them all die <laughs> most of the time. So, you know, I just morale rules, I think, need to come with more these days to to, to be satisfying to today's most of today's DMs. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have gotten through a another little section of this we have more to go but we will not be covering that today we will handle that when we are all fresh and refreshed next time but let us thank everyone for your support if you're a listener thank you so much for listening we do appreciate you hanging in there and abiding our madness If you are a Patreon supporter, thank you to our Master of Dungeon supporters. We couldn't do this without you. Thank you, Master of Realm supporters. You have a special mention in our show notes. And to the Masters of the Multiverse, well, this one's for you. Graham Ward, James Walton, Joe Tyler, Krishna Simonsay, Andy Shockney, 
Ross Sandberg, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Vladimir Prenner from Croatia, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Falcon Neal, Sean Molly, The Micro Ant, Eric Mengi, The Mathemagician, Chad Lynch, Jim Klingler, a.k.a. DM Prime Mover, Brian King, sorry about the Lions this week, that was tough, Chad Johnson, Sean Hurst, Paige Lightman and Ben Heisler, The Mighty Jerd, Nathan Fuller, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Seth Eckel, Darren Chandler, DM Chad, Evil John, Merrick Blackman, Steve Bissonette, Craig Bailey, and Keith Ammon of The Monsters Know What They're Doing. Thank you for your support. You, yes, you, valued listener, can become a patron and join our Discord and help us out by going to patreon.com slash masteringdnd. Every little bit helps pay our fees and our hosting and all of that, and we very much appreciate all the support. If you do get a chance, you can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or by whatever means you listen to this podcast. Uh, that helps us get some five-star ratings and get some get some good traction out there. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. If our voices aren't enough and you need to see us, uh, I'm sorry, but you can make that choice if you so choose. Yes, let's make beautiful faces. Teos, where can people find you? <laughs> uh, find me at alphastream.org uh, where you can download my face. No, well, I mean, I guess technically. But don't do that. Mm -hmm. um, you can, from there, find all the other places where I am. But I want to know where I find myself as Sean Merwin. I can find myself on Twitter or X or whatever. The podcast is also there, at Mastering D&D. Uh, we're on Mastodon. I'm at uh, Tabletop Social, but the show is at Dice Camp. And you can join our community. You can go on Blue Sky now, at Mastering D&D. And you can also leave comments on our YouTube channel where some people have done just that. So, Teos, whew, we've gotten through some adventuring options. We've gotten through some optional combat rules. We're still standing. Our morale is holding strong. What are we going to do now? <laughs> uh, I'm going to go use the optional rules for resting so I can uh, slather yeah. that in more uh, antibacterial ointment and uh, recuperate fully for some other amount of fun homeownership that will be challenging me in the future. Luckily, you did not have to roll on the massive damage table because we would not have wanted that. 